Hello, I'm David Scott, the editor-in-chief of The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a professor of public policy at McGill. And this is Big Tech, a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it. The first phase of this pandemic was defined by terms like social distancing and flatten the curve. But as we enter this next chapter, a new phrase has been added to our collective vocabulary, test and trace. According to public health officials around the world, the best way to fight COVID-19 is through a rigorous system of testing and contact tracing. Contact tracing has been around for centuries, and it's played an important role in containing other viruses like SARS, Ebola, even smallpox. It's essentially detective work. When somebody tests positive for the virus, you track down everyone they've come into contact with since becoming infected. Then you tell those people to self-isolate and get tested. It's actually pretty straightforward, and it can be really effective, but it requires a lot of resources. In the United States, some experts estimate that they would need as many as 300,000 contact tracers in order to track the virus effectively. It's a massive undertaking, so governments around the world are of course turning to technology to help, namely in the form of digital contact tracing apps. Dozens of countries have already rolled out apps like this, and dozens more will be rolling out in the next couple of weeks. And while they all fall under the banner of digital contact tracing, no two apps are created equal. Some use GPS to track people, while others use proximity-based Bluetooth. Some rely on self-reporting, while others require a positive diagnosis. And perhaps most significantly, some apps store all their data in a centralized place, like an app being tested in the UK right now. Others are decentralized, which means that your data stays on your phone and doesn't go to some public health authority. The most prominent example of this is a protocol developed by Google and Apple that is totally decentralized and geared towards protecting users' privacy. In other words, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. And there are serious questions about whether this kind of tech even works. So to help make sense of all this, we sat down with Carly Kind. Carly is a director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, an organization that studies issues around data and AI. In April, they published a report on digital contact tracing called Exit Through the App Store. We began our conversation talking about the merits of digital contact tracing. But it turns out it's impossible to isolate that conversation from a much broader one about issues of tech governance and about shifting power structures in our society. So in that report that came out in April, you found that, and I quote, there was an absence of evidence to support the immediate national deployment of the technical solutions under consideration, unquote. Since then, we've seen Australia, Iceland that have rolled out apps. The UK has now started testing an app. Several states in the US, as well as here in Canada, are moving in that direction. Do you think we're moving too fast? That's a good question. And I think we're continually revisiting that conclusion. Is there now sufficient evidence to support the national deployment of these apps? I think, first of all, it's important to say that most of the people, almost all of the people involved in this development of this tech are entirely well-intentioned. People are trying to find good solutions for immense problems that are not only public health problems, but the economic problems. And the effect of the lockdown is potentially as bad as the lockdown itself, you know, the, the kind of health uh, impacts of reducing the lockdown. So 
you know, start from the point where everybody's trying their best and, and trying to be well-intentioned. I think when we published Exit Through the App Store, we simply couldn't see the evidence to support um, the types of claims that were being made at that stage that a exit strategy could hinge on the deployment of an app. There just wasn't the evidence to show that an app had been effective in any country, even though people were holding up countries like Singapore and South Korea as exemplars, there was no evidence to connect the use of a digital technology to the success in responding to the pandemic, but rather most of the success could be attributed to other mechanisms such as very pervasive manual contact tracing, other kind of social institutions in place. I would say that that is still the case, that we still haven't seen the evidence to support um, the fact that apps themselves can be an effective public health intervention around this crisis. Certainly, there is no evidence to suggest that they can't be a useful complement. But on the countries that have used apps, we find no claims being made to them being central to any success. So um, Iceland, for example, the head of the contact tracing system there came out and said the app itself didn't really sway the response in either direction. It was investment in manual contact tracing that was effective. Equally, the product lead for the Singapore Trace Together app came out and said the app hasn't really made the difference here. It is around manual contact tracing that has been incredibly important. I think there's generally a feeling from Singapore that the app was almost a failure. So I think there's a very kind of murky set of evidence about how important these apps have been. I was hoping we could just pause for a second on the technology of contact tracing. Sure. Can you walk through what we're actually talking about on the technology side? And in particular, the different sort of levels of accuracy that are possible with Bluetooth versus GPS versus like, so, so when you think about the app on your phone that you download, what is that going to be doing to help the process of contact tracing? Uh, good question. It depends, of course, on what exactly the design of the app is, but it's fair to say that with all digital contact tracing apps, the intention of the app is to help to assist a person map out their contacts, uh, i.e. people they have come near um, throughout a particular period of time in order to identify where they may, may have passed on the illness. And so digital contact tracing apps have developed kind of two mechanisms for doing that. One focuses on GPS data, so physically trying to pinpoint an individual's location over a series of time such that either the individual themselves or potentially an outsider coming in can look back through that data and isolate where they've been in the vicinity of other people and then go and contact those people and make them aware that they may have been exposed to the virus. So that's GPS focusing on actual location. Now, there's another mechanism that has emerged in this crisis, which is around proximity notification. So that is around not knowing exactly where in London I was, but knowing who I came into contact with. And to do that type of contact tracing, you don't need GPS, you don't need to know exact location. What you do need to know is uh, proximity to other mobile phones. And to do that type of contact tracing, you can do that using Bluetooth. So um, these are, this is the more prevalent type of contact tracing app. Essentially, with Bluetooth enabled and using a digital contact tracing app, my mobile phone can keep a record of every other mobile phone that it has come near over a period of time. 
and it can keep that record until and unless I then um, start to experience symptoms, at which stage it can notify all those other mobile phones that I'm experiencing symptoms and that they should also self-isolate. So that's the kind of theory of digital contact tracing. In terms of the kind of problems and limitations with GPS, there are a range of, of limitations. So some of those are around specificity of GPS data. So what um, level of detail can you get to in terms of where an individual is? And then if they go into buildings, if they go into the metro, the underground, etc., how much of that data do you actually lose? On the Bluetooth side of things, the technical limitations are around how specific in terms of uh, level of detail of distance between mobile phones. So um, under most countries' public health rules, they need to know when an individual has come within one to two metres of another individual. And Bluetooth acts as a proxy for that distance. But research shows that Bluetooth isn't great at necessarily detecting that level of specificity, essentially. So it might not work, for example, uh, for distances less than five metres. There's also the concern that Bluetooth, for example, might work through thin walls. So if I have a thin wall between my neighbour and I, might Bluetooth detect proximity there? So those are kind of base level technical limitations. There's a kind of second level technical limitation of contact tracing, which is around um, if you were doing manual contact tracing, you might say to a person, okay, well, how close did you stand to your neighbour? Were you inside or outside? Was the wind blowing? You'd ask all of these types of questions to, in order to understand, was this a contact or was it not? Whereas with a Bluetooth type proximity system, all you know is that the mobile phones were near each other. Beyond the Bluetooth GPS distinction, there, there are other ways these technologies differ from one another, Right. Um, one's to do with how they're actually storing their data, where they're storing it, how they're storing it. Um, can you explain that distinction? In the UK, the NHS um, is developing its own bespoke digital contact tracing app. And that has kind of raised a range of controversies around where the data is stored. So on some proximity tracing apps, Bluetooth apps, the data is stored in an uh, anonymized uh, form on an individual's phone. Um, in the NHS system, the data is stored at a centralised level in a pseudonymous form. And the NHS uh, has argued that that's preferable because it allows them to make adjustments to how they make decisions about some of those issues I raised earlier about length of time that you'd need to be near somebody, proximity and all the other kind of factors that feed into whether or not a contact is actually a contact. NHS is arguing that they're better able to adjust that as new information comes to light if they have the data stored at a central level. And, and that's that's in, in juxtaposition to a more decentralized architecture, right? Absolutely. So the, there's a big conversation about whether or not you can achieve the same type of functionality with a decentralized version. So the decentralized version means everything's stored on your app, no data shared with anybody else. And that's what Apple and Google are providing or exactly. offering, right? That's the Google and Apple uh, system that they've developed and built. And there's a lot of um, kind of positives in favor of that system, I think. What is really important for ordinary people that don't spend their days talking about decentralized versus centralized uh, <laughs> systems is that one thing it does implicate is how trusting people are in the system. So 
With a decentralized system, less data is gathered. With a centralized system, the state has access to more data, um, albeit potentially in a very privacy-preserving way. But that has flow-on effects for whether or not people feel that they want to use the app. And that gets us into this whole other challenge around digital contact tracing, which is arguably more fundamental, which is you need a minimum threshold of people to use a digital contact tracing system in order for it to be effective at all. What number? What percentage? What is, the, what is that minimum? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right. We both want to know. <laughs> That's a really good question. So you probably have had the 60% number. So the, the optimum number is 60%. And that's based on modeling done by the Oxford Big Data Group, which found that 60% of the population, which is actually 80% of smartphone users, would have to use a contact tracing app in the UK in order for it to be effective in suppressing the virus. But there has research coming out. Um, I think it's Frank Dignam. He published an interesting paper in which he was saying that it's not sufficient to talk about 20% or 60% of uh, population. That 20 or 60% needs to be evenly distributed across the country. If you had 10% of the UK uh, population download and use the app, that would be about 6 million people. If those people were all in London, Newcastle or Durham or Manchester would not get any benefit from the use of that app. It would clearly have to be distributed more evenly. So, you know, whether you have a Bluetooth app uh, or whether you have a centralized or decentralized app, at the end of the day, if I'm understanding you correctly, you still need the adoption. Absolutely. And so that's now a wonderful segue for me to talk about U2. Many years ago, U2 had their album downloaded onto every Apple phone much to the dismay of people who were not fans of Bono. Apple and Google have said that they're developing a, an exposure notification tool. In terms of the adoption, what advantages could Apple and Google bring to this, given their sheer scale? Yeah, really interesting question. So it's true that the NHS app that's under development, there have been some suggestions coming out from the trials that it drains the battery, for example, because the app can't operate in the background. It has to operate in the foreground. Now, that is absolutely a problem unique to a bespoke system. It will not be a problem experienced under the Apple and Google protocol because they control the hardware um, and are able to uh, to fix those problems. So I think that's one point. I think what your question is otherwise alluding to is essentially this question of whether or not this type of app would need to be mandatory or kind of heavily suggested, including through an automatic update in order to be useful. And I think that there is a strong argument that if digital contact tracing was an effective mechanism, if you could solve the technical limitations and mitigate the social considerations and concerns, there would be a strong argument in favour for going that route, that is automatically sending out an update to everybody that required them to download the app. Whether or not you'd get them to then use it is another question. But if we agree that an app like this could be effective, it must be in the public interest for as many people to use that as possible and for us to use all methods kind of short of coercion um, for them to use that. But I, I do think the problem there is we don't actually have the evidence to support that it's a useful or effective tool in the first place or that those negative uh, social impacts could be mitigated. So I would be very uncomfortable supporting that position now. But if we could get to a place where we thought, actually, this is super important and everybody should be using this because all of our fates are tied up together, then using that system would be, I think, the best way forward. What kind of guarantees are being discussed around time limitations 
of when this would be used. I mean, it, it was once, you know, the natural argument from privacy experts is, well, once we go down this road, it'll be really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Are the app creators putting in place some guarantees that will appease privacy experts? Um, I I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I would say... Um, I'm a lawyer, so I guess I start from the perspective of it would be better if it were in law. I think that the the, be- the better way to give those guarantees would be some type of legislation with the sunset clause. So in terms of what protections would be best, I think firstly, technical protections, that is you could just delete the app and therefore delete your data. That would be the best way that would place the most control in the user's hand. Beyond that, I think some type of watertight legal protection requiring the app makers and users to delete the app at the end of a particular period. But to be honest, I I think that the concerns are probably much more fundamental than just, will I have to keep using this particular app or will I get my data deleted? I think it's really about how society is going to transform more fundamentally into you know, higher levels of tracking and requirements to disclose information about one's health status and um, kind of submit to more intrusive levels of state monitoring as we work out how to deal with this crisis in the long term. Like a lot of these tech adoption trade-offs, it often comes down to whether you think those bigger structural changes and potential negative changes can be offset enough to adopt the utility these tech can provide, yeah. right? Where do you fall on this now? Do you think we should, like, there's so many limitations to this, clearly. Um, there aren't many protections being built in yet, legally. Um, do you think without those, we should even bother? On digital contact tracing, I, I I remain not, it's not so much I remain unconvinced, I remain kind of quite pessimistic about how useful it will be. And in, and kind of concern that we're putting too much faith in it. Certainly in the UK, you know, there's quite a lot of disagreement about at what stage schools should reopen, for example. And and for a while, the government was saying, provided the app is in place, then we will reopen schools, as if the app is the kind of silver bullet that will make schools safe. And um, I just think that... As opposed uh, to a bunch of six-year-olds <laughs> yeah, exactly. None of spreading germs <laughs> with each other. Yeah. I mean, and that raises a whole other question, right, about, you know, if kids don't use these apps, you know, how do we make sure that we're tracking contacts on theirs? And, and we haven't even talked about kind of those that are digitally excluded and the elderly who are also the most vulnerable to the, to this disease. But so I think that there's that kind of putting the hopes on the app is for me quite worrying. And I I'm just remain unconvinced that, that we're going to get through all of the kind of technical glitches that make it work. In contrast to that, I think this question around immunity apps and health status apps has more uh, mileage in some respects in terms of, to your point, Taylor, about how we do these trade-offs around, you know, there may be genuine utility in someone being able to say, I can get on that plane because I've had this disease and I and I can prove it. Um, and I want to go and see my family in Australia, which is the situation I'm in, for example. Um, uh, you know, there may be genuine utility to that. And some of the technical limitations of contact tracing don't exist. There, You're just talking about a simple kind of digital identity system. And there we need to think really hard about the long-term infrastructures that we're going to establish and the precedents we're going to set. So, how can we design a system that enables people to use that type of verification, but don't also end up in a situation where people are stigmatized for that same health status or 
prevented from moving in certain places or returning to work because they can't show an immunity status or immunity passport. And I think that's the precipice on which we stand, which is we now need to stop trying to plug holes with apps and we need to think fundamentally, what is the society going to look like for the next few years? What technical infrastructure might help us design a better society that's more inclusive? And how do we get there in a way that brings everyone along for the ride and avoid the kind of scaremongering, but also the techno solutionism that we've seen at various points in this crisis and find a kind of mediate a middle path that makes, you know, that genuinely brings people in and along for the ride. Part of that bungled rollout seems to be the application of geopolitics on top of this too. Hmm. And I wonder if you can help explain what's going on with the EU on this right now. I mean, just today I saw a piece that five of the biggest countries in Europe are criticizing Silicon Valley for kind of imposing their technological infrastructure on Europe. Hmm. And at the same time, you're seeing these national deployments by the most privacy-conscious democracies in the world that are arguably far more centralized and far more hmm. egregious in terms of data collection. Hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you balance that? Like, What's going on with European countries right now? <laughs> what, what's up with I Europe? Think, <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, it feeds into, I think, a broader trend that we've seen in Europe in recent um, well, certainly in, in recent years around kind of big tech regulation and competition and all the rest of it. But if you look at the um, European data strategy, which they published, I think, in January and the draft and the AI white paper, there's a real sense in those documents that the social value or public value of data has been exploited by the tech companies and hasn't been exploited by governments, that they've kind of missed the boat on how to work out how to use data in the best way and that companies have achieved that to the detriment of governments. And I think that this is a is a kind of fault line that's been exposed somewhat by this crisis, which is governments feel like they're at a disadvantage when it comes to using data, using technology and tech companies uh, have the kind of keys to unlock all the potential of data, all the potential of technology. And, and I think that that is actually something that we should sit with and, and, and think as we go into this new phase about, is there a way to reapportion access to data that helps us realize its social value? Carly, the data analytics firm Palantir recently partnered with the NHS as part of their coronavirus response. Palantir is controversial for a number of reasons, the most recent being uh, that ICE was using their software to facilitate mass deportations in, in the States. What are the implications of this kind of partnership, and how do we, as citizens, remain vigilant about adopting some of these tools when these tools actually might be helpful in the short term? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think that it's very difficult for citizens to take a position that's fundamentally kind of for or against particular companies working with particular government agencies. I think that we have to try and engage citizens in the nuance of those conversations, which is not about demonising necessarily public-private partnerships, which many of these are, but which is about thinking about how to structure them in a way that gets benefit to individuals, protects against abuse, 
um, and ensures that the value created remains with the kind of public bodies and public institutions. So, you know, people can hold more than one idea in their mind at the same time. I think that people can appreciate that the public health system can derive immense value from collaborating with private companies, that they bring things like you know, specialist algorithms and research and and advanced technology that could be brought to bear in the health system. Um, And that there's a a value exchange that happens there. But I think there's a real worry that that's not a fair value exchange and that companies inevitably win out. Um, I think with Palantir, for example, one of the concerns is that they're charging one pound for the whole contract with the NHS. Now, it may be that they're doing it out of the good of their heart and they're coming to aid in in a crisis, Undoubtedly, there are there is value they derive from that contract. I think making that explicit helps to build public trust and confidence and kind of eliminates the sense that there's backroom dealings going on that makes people suspicious of these types of things. I, I think it's unnecessary kind of cloak and dagger, if you ask me. I think they could be more upfront about this. So I do think it's, it's more complex than just bad companies, good companies, um, government and private sector, good or bad, etc. I think there are there, you know, there's an interesting collaboration between the two that can be really fruitful. But from a kind of public accountability perspective, we need a lot of transparency around that. Yeah. And while there's a fair amount of differentiation between some of these companies, what's clearly undebatable is that some of them are getting a lot bigger right now. Um, we had, a, we had a fascinating conversation with Joseph Stiglitz recently, where he was talking about the parallels between now and the Great Depression. And it, his argument was that it wasn't just that companies were getting bigger during that period, um, but that they were also getting more politically powerful. And, and that was actually the combination that triggered an era of antitrust, mm. um, this combination between economic power and political power. And I wonder if you see this happening again. We've been hearing for a long time that big tech wants to get into the financial services and healthcare sectors um, because these were sort of the last big stores of data that they could get access to in society. Mm. Well, it looks like some companies are getting a pretty big window into the healthcare data space right now. And that a consequence of some of these public-private partnerships we're talking about is that the relationship between tech and political power is becoming even closer. I guess I'm wondering, is this something that concerns you? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I think it's hugely concerning. Um, And it's doubly so given, at least in Europe, and I'm sure in North America, we're finding that governments will be gutted by this crisis, actually, financially, and will look more and more to the private sector to take on aspects of, you know, provision of public services, potentially, or um, other aspects in order to, to help us emerge from what will be a very deep recession. I think there is, there's something about, um, focus on data and then there's something about infrastructures and kind of digital infrastructures. So I think there's a big question around access to data, who has it, who's able to use it and how they're able to profit from that and gain power. Um, And I think that if the result of this crisis is to give more of that data to big tech companies, we see an entrenching of, you know, existing problems and and, um, even more difficulty in digging our way out of that. And Equally, I think there's a kind of who designs infrastructure, who controls infrastructure question. And this is why the Google and Apple protocol is so interesting because, you know, from a purely kind of privacy perspective, you can't help but think it's a great solution. From a kind of power and control perspective, you can't help but feel somewhat afraid that two companies control almost every device in every 
hand in the world and are able to wield that power in ways that contradict right or wrong the desires of national governments and public health authorities. So um, I think that that's scary and and Taylor you're right that we see this as a huge opportunity for them to entrench those positions. I'm not sure what the way out of that is. Um, What I think we probably need is a more fundamental vision for how things need to change now because the current path we're on looks only to be exacerbated by the crisis unless we have a different path to move towards. And so, you know, you brought up monopoly. I think we need to, problems of um, anti-competitive behaviour are certainly going to only get worse when big tech companies get into the health sector. So I think that necessitates a much stronger rationale for um, kind of getting into anti-monopoly regulation sooner rather than later. It's, it's really remarkable that we can start our conversation talking about contact tracing and the technology and specifics of that and then roll into privacy and then roll into marketplace and competition and then, you know, strap on a little bit of geopolitics as a, as a kicker <laughs> on top. And that's kind of it's kind of a remarkable statement of where we are in this moment and how much is encapsulated in decisions that are made very incrementally that could have such far-reaching implications. And I, I guess for my last question, I wonder, you know, I read a piece by Atul Gawande in The New Yorker that talked about masks, you know, just straight up old-fashioned paper surgical masks uh, having a 90% or 95% protection rate if everybody wore them. And then I listened to you talk about the lack of effectiveness, quite frankly, if I'm not misunderstanding you, from contact tracing and I have to wonder, all of this hope in technology, is it misplaced? Are we better off thinking more about old technologies as opposed to new ones? What a time to ask it when we all we do is interact with each other via technology. Um, I, I feel positive about technology. I think it's uh, enabled kind of immense uh, benefits. And this has been the most amazing time to witness how digital transformation can happen overnight when it's dragged on for many years. But I would say that we need to be very, very careful, more careful than ever about the lure of techno solutionism. And I think that this crisis to me has revealed just how strong that drive is to want to fix things with apps, uh, to put it really simply. My colleague Rima Patel loves to give the um, analogy of the washing machine, that the washing machine was kind of uh, sold as a means to liberate women from domestic household chores. And I think that most women alive today can say that that wasn't entirely achieved through the introduction of the washing machine. Um, And I think we need to be very careful when technologies make some aspects of our lives so much better, not thinking that that necessarily applies across the board, including in in, um, fighting pandemics. Um, I, I, and not to add in kind of another layer of complexity, but I do think there is a very real risk that a strapped uh, cash uh, incomes will it will push us further towards techno solutionism than than away from it. And particularly when you think about the potential for risk scoring or other types of um, algorithmic systems to be applied in public services and the de- delivery of welfare benefits, etc. Um, I think we we really risk going down that path. So in addition to trying to find a new positive vision for a data governance ecosystem, I think we also need to 
work out what is the messages that, that really break through about how technology won't solve everything and how, how you can send those messages without sounding like a neo-Luddite, which is an, another part of the problem, how to make them politically palatable for a policymaker to say, actually, we don't think that an app is the solution here. We think you know, hiring 20,000 manual contact tracers is actually the solution. And and how do you remove whatever invisible pressure seems to be there for them to always say that technology is the solution here? I think those are some more fundamental questions that I'm grappling with. It's been uh, a real pleasure to chat with you and, and um, you know, no doubt these things are going to be more complex as this conversation has uh, illustrated for all of us. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic, and produced by Antica Productions. Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.